glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. All right, stand with me if you would. As we read these verses, we'll just again read the first four verses here and keep our focus there tonight. Jude 1, verse 1. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. You may be seated. If you are, and I hope you are, in the habit not only of reading your Bible but studying, uh, one of the things I'd encourage you to do is as we go through the book of Jude, read it and read through it. It's not very long. You can read through it, uh, you can read through it every day of the week if you wanted to but especially maybe on Thursday, read up and read ahead. But I also encourage you to read it in comparison to, the, to Second Peter. They're almost verbatim in certain places. As Second Peter warns about apostasy and apostates in Second Peter, so does Jude. Some of the descriptions they give of the apostate, the comparisons to false prophets in the Old Testament, are, are identical from Second Peter and the book of Jude. Uh, I want to give you four things out of these four verses tonight. Uh, just by way of introduction, one of the things I, I love about teaching through verse by verse a book of the Bible is it forces us to look at what is there and and the truth that is in front of us. And so I'm looking forward again, been enjoying going through first, second, third John, looking forward to this uh, in the book of Jude as well, as it is so, so applicable to the time in which we're living. So let's start here in verse 1. Uh, we have two of our points out of verse 1. As we begin, just want to introduce us to Jude uh, this Jude, who, who knows who he was in relation to the disciples and apostles? I mean, exactly who was this Jude? Someone said, well, he's the brother of James. Right. And to be honest with you, that's about what we know. Uh, there's a number of Judes in the Bible. You have Jude is short for Judas. It's used in short for Judas. And so what I'll do is I'm going to read you some texts that, that help us have an idea of who he might have been. But I think what's going to be important is that's not really what's important. Uh, sometimes we get all hung up on the details of who was this. We have to remember men who wrote the Bible were men who wrote the Bible. They were penmen. God told men what to write, and they did. There are certain books in the Bible to this day. We still don't know who the, the human penman was. We know who the author is. We don't know who the human penman was. And that, that is not unimportant. It's important to understand that God used men, but man was not to be the focal point. The message that came from the pen of that man is to be the focal point and the one who gave it. And so let me give you just a, a couple of things about the author or the penman of this book. He starts off by identifying himself first in relationship to Jesus Christ. He doesn't say Jude, the brother of James, servant of Jesus Christ. He could have, and that would have been all right, I suppose. But he says, first of all, Jude the servant of Jesus Christ. He deals with what is important first. And by the way, every one of us should be able to have the same title given to us and it be accurate and honest. 
Nevin, the servant of Jesus Christ. Braden, the servant of Jesus Christ. Shalin, the servant of Jesus Christ. Jim, the servant of Jesus Christ. It ought to be able to be tagged to any one of us and it be a truth. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ. What he gives us first is his heavenly identity. He's going to first of all tell us who he is from God's perspective and that is the servant of Jesus Christ. And we just need to think about this for just a moment. When we are, we, we have a hard time with this in our culture because of the way our culture is set up, now, we don't really have servants as, as so-called today. We do. We call them employees today. But the, the issue today is there are so many conflicts over rights and so forth that we have a difficult time understanding this concept of a servant. If you were someone's servant in this economy, uh, you would do what the master told you to do. That's the way that worked. So if you had a bad master, you were in trouble. <laughs> you didn't want a bad master because your master is going to treat you ill and there are still, still people today who get in a situation where someone is governing their lives and treat them wrong. Jude here doesn't seem to be one bit ashamed of who he belongs to and who his master is. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ. When I'm his servant... I don't simply call him Lord, Lord. I recognize he's Lord, and then I do what he tells me to do. And so I love the fact that Jude identifies himself first and foremost as the servant of Jesus Christ. I notice he doesn't just say the servant of Jesus. He was the servant of Jesus, but there are many Jesuses in Jesus' day. Uh, there was Bar-Jesus in the book of Acts when he says he was the son of a Jesus, and it was a common name. Jesus Christ is Jesus the Messiah the anointed one of God to save man from his sins. That's Jesus Christ. Jesus, the one who left heaven, came to this earth, lived a sinless life, laid his life down on the cross, died for our sins, was punished for our sins, raised from the dead, and is living right now. That's who Jude was serving. We understand when Jude says this, Jesus Christ is in heaven. But he says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, and so then, uh, it should be the same of us. And by the way, that is what was important. If a person was going to be used to pin down Scripture, you had to be a servant of Jesus Christ. And if we're going to be used of God today, same is true. We can't, uh, we can't have any if, issues or difficulty with the Lord Jesus Christ governing our lives. So his heavenly identity was simple but significant. If I told you, and I kind of went through something like this with my kids today in devotions this morning... Um, if I told you that this week um, uh, I shoveled some snow, you'd say, "Woohoo! We've all done that." So no, you don't. You don't understand. I shovel snow every day. You go, "Wow!" So you don't understand. I shovel snow at the White House for my job. That's my job. I am a personal employee of the President of the United States, and I shovel snow so he doesn't have to walk in it. Would that change your understanding of how important my job is? It hasn't, shoveling snow is not important. But when you identify who you're working for, now that makes a difference. If I'm shoveling my own sidewalk, who cares? We all do that. But when you say I'm shoveling, if it can be the most insignificant job done for a very significant person. I share with my kids. When I was about nine, I got to serve as a page in the Tennessee House of Representatives. My dad was invited to open the house in prayer. Very 
in, in very uh, interesting day. It was a neat thing. We were from a small county like this, and the representative said, hey, why don't you come open us in prayer? That was a time before they censored your speech, and you could still pray in Jesus' name and all those things. And so he did, and us four kids, older kids, we got to go and serve as pages, meaning we got to run papers, batteries for lapel mics. I did. I ran back and forth between the House and the Senate carrying papers, and this is the illustration I used with my kids. But if I told you I carried papers one day, you'd say, okay. But I said, I carried papers for a representative in the Tennessee House of Representatives. Now, that's all of a sudden different. Jude doesn't say, I'm a servant. There were servants everywhere. He said, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. We must understand to serve the Lord Jesus Christ is not a low state or position. It is a tremendous and high honor. If the Lord Jesus Christ gives us something to do, we dealt with Sunday night, the gifting he gives us and being stewards of the grace of God. When God saves us, he not only saves us from our sin, he calls us to serve him. And the fact that we get to serve him in any capacity is a high honor. And I hear that in Jude when he starts, when he says, my heavenly identity is this, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. He's laying some groundwork immediately about who is the authority in his life and what his station in life was. Then he says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, the brother and brother of James. Uh, (laughs) So I'll just pick on me uh, again tonight. When I was in Bible college, I was known many times not as Nevin, but as Nikki and Alicia's brother because they preceded me and they were already very known at the school I went to. And so for some, I never had a name. I was just Nikki's brother. I'm still that to some people today. Oh, you're Nikki's brother. Oh, you're you're Alicia's brother. Oh, you're so-and-so. And we sometimes have to identify that way. What does this tell us about Jude? Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, brother of James. I think this, had he not told them that, they might not know exactly who he was. They might say, which Jude? There's a lot of them running around here these days. There were multiple Judes that were servants of Jesus Christ, it would seem. But he's Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, brother of James. And so, uh, if you want to look in your Bibles to kind of, and I won't turn here for time's sake because this is kind of not a, an extremely important point. Some believe that this is the very brother, half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason they would believe that would be because the Lord Jesus had a half-brother named James and a half-brother named Judas. So it would make sense. It could be the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. If it is, he chose not to reference that. He chose to say, no, I'm the servant of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, there's another Jude brother, James, that was one of his apostles. You can read about that. In uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 16, it talks about Jude, the brother of James. He's also known by a couple of other names. Uh, if, you, uh, if you look at the two lists of the apostles, he's got a few different names there, but one of them being Jude, the brother of James. And so there's really two possibilities. He's either one of the original 12 apostles, Jude, the brother of James. There were two Jameses, by the way, in Jesus' 12. There was James, the son of Alphaeus. There was James, the son of Zebedee. This would be Jude, the brother of James, the son of Alphaeus, we would assume. So it's one of those two guys. You know what's important, though? It's not who he was, but who he served. And we must get a hold of that lesson as well for us. And so his heavenly identity, servant of Jesus Christ, his human identity, brother of James, uh, he really doesn't identify any other way. His, His identity is all about who he's related to. And that tells me something. You don't have to be of somebody in this world for God to use you in a significant way. Here we have somebody, we can't even quite exactly identify which Jude he was, because you can read different men who thinks he was a different Jude. That's really, it doesn't matter. 
What matters is who he served, and God used this man to put a book in our Bibles. He's going to speak to these people and give them truth. I wonder how big of an audience or how big of a church Jude pastored. That's not what's important. He had a job in serving the Lord Jesus Christ, and what he's about to say is extremely important, so important this Holy Spirit of God would preserve it in the canon of Scripture in our Bibles. And so the important tonight is you do not have to be a who's who or a somebody in the eyes of men for God to use you in a significant way. And so then, uh, his human identity, servant of Jesus, heavenly identity, servant of Jesus Christ, his human identity, the brother of James. He's uh, James's brother. And again, you can read about that in Acts 1, 13 and 14, uh, the, the Jude, the brother of James. And so then, that's the author. The audience he's speaking to, I find it interesting, this is not addressed generally to every human being. How many of us understand most of the Bible is not addressed to humanity in general? We'll say things like that. Don't misunderstand me. The whole world needs to hear what the Bible has to say. But the Bible is entrusted to God's people. We are the ones that are stewards of the Word of God. Notice who he addresses. He says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. It's a threefold description of people that we would call saved There are people that are saved and there are people that are unsaved. There are people that are part of God's family and there are people that are not yet part of God's family. And the Bible, especially this book, was addressed to the saved. Have you ever read, Cast not thy pearls before the swine? You understand, there's some Bible that some some people, we don't need to spout off all Bible to everybody. Some people are not at a place uh, where they are ready to receive it. They'll trample it under their feet. Uh, because they have, they devalue it. And so Jude specifically addresses what's written here to those who are sanctified by God the Father. Sanctified means set apart for Him. The Bible says we've been saved out of the world. Jesus said that in John 17, that when God saved us, He set us apart unto Himself. The Lord Jesus is purifying unto Himself a peculiar people zealous of good works, Titus 2 says. So sanctified by God the Father. So what happens? Because of our faith in Jesus Christ, God looks at us differently than he does everybody else. God does not look at all men and look at, and view all men the same. He loves all men the same. Don't misunderstand me. All men are not accepted by God. Do we understand that? So I say something like this. Come to God as you are. There's truth in that. You come to God as you are, but you must come to God his way. You must come through Jesus Christ. The Bible says, neither is there salvation. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And so uh, Jude says, I'm writing to those of you who've been set apart by God the Father, and then he tells how, and preserved in Jesus Christ. We all understand what the idea of preserved means. You take something that otherwise would rot and ruin and you put it in a process that will preserve it. We have jars on our shelves at home of preserves and I like getting into them. Amen? I'm glad they're preserved. What happened is though they're put in a jar, put in a process that seals them up and preserves them, not eternally, but for a length of time. This idea of preserved is that our being preserved is another word for being saved or even the word sealed in Ephesians 1 uh, is to be marked and set aside by God as His own. It is our position in Jesus Christ that keeps us from the corruption of sin, ruining us 
and destroying us eternally. That's why it is through faith in Jesus Christ alone that a person can be saved from his or her sin. And so he makes it very clear. I'm writing to those who are sanctified. You are set apart by God for himself through your faith in Jesus Christ. You are preserved in Jesus Christ. That, by the way, that word preserved is where we would get the concept of what people call once saved, always saved. Those who deride on that belief, that's what they like to say. Do you believe in once saved, always saved? I do because I believe that the life we're given is eternal. You know what eternal means? Always, <laughs> forever, no end. The life we're given is eternal. I believe that no man can pluck us out of the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe what he is stating right here in Jude verse 1 is the same thing that John stated in John chapter 10 verse 27. Uh, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give to them eternal life and hopefully they will not perish. If anybody knows the Bible we're quoting, you know that's not right. And they shall never perish. You know what the perishing is? It's the opposite of being preserved. When we have a good, we say that's a perishable good, meaning it's corrupt and it can go bad and you have to throw it out. Sin corrupts mankind and the only one that can preserve you is Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can make you fit for heaven. And so then we're preserved in Jesus Christ. He said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. And uh, no man is able to pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, but no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. It's this idea. When I trust Jesus to wash me from my sins and save me, He does so and He keeps me. We're kept by Him. That's what it means to be preserved in Jesus Christ. So He's writing to those who are sanctified by the Father, sealed or preserved or secure, if you would, in Jesus Christ. And then He says, and called, selected. This is a reminder that we didn't call God and say, please come up with a way to save us. God came up with a way to save us and called us to salvation. I've got a question. Can you be called without being preserved? Now bear with me here. Now, this is a doctrinal class, okay? Can you be called and not preserved? You're all looking at me like, you're trying to trick us. <laughs> and the answer is correct. You can. Many are called, but few are chosen. How many are called to salvation? Let's just have our doctrinal class while we're here. How many people are called of God to be saved? All. All. God hath commanded all men everywhere to repent. No verse, by the way, people want to take obscure verses and say, now wait just a minute. When the Bible is as plain as it is in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, let us be that plain. And now God hath commanded all men everywhere to repent. Revelation twenty two seventeen says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the him that heareth say, Come. And whosoever will, let him take, and, and let him that is thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Who's he say? Whosoever will. The call is to everybody. But the preserved are those who have obeyed the call. When my will submits to God's will. How many people is God willing to save? All. Oh. Second Peter 3, 9, For God is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so then, these people had been called by faith in Jesus Christ. They had answered that call, put their faith in Christ, and were preserved 
and because of their preserved position in Christ, sanctified by God the Father. He is giving a threefold explanation of what it means to be saved. You are called, preserved, and now sanctified, called by the Spirit of God, preserved in Christ, and sanctified by God the Father. All that to say this, he's writing to the saved. He is writing to people who knew what it meant to be called unto salvation through the Word of God. He's writing to people who understood what it meant to be saved and and secure in Jesus Christ. He's writing to people that knew they were set apart by God uh, 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 unto heaven as their home, set apart by God and the family of God. That's who he's writing to. Therefore, that's who he's writing to tonight. That's still the audience that he's addressing even at this moment. Thirdly, in verse 2, we see not only the author the audience, but the affection he had for them. Notice what he says. Don't miss this. Verse 2. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. He wants three things in their lives. He is, he is desirous that they would have a what I'll call a manifold blessing. I want mercy and peace and love. Now, here's where I want you to, to tune in real close. If you had somebody writing a letter to you that said, Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied... What do you think would follow? What kind of message would you expect to follow? If it's about mercy and peace and love, would you expect a a negative epistle or a positive one? And yet about 65% of this epistle is negative. About 65% of this epistle is him identifying what bad people are like. Now, wait a minute. That doesn't jive. If... If it's going to be nice, merciful, and peace, and love, then aren't you just going to talk about all the, you know, the grace of God, and that's wonderful. But what he's going to do is take most of the rest of the epistle and warn them about people they need to beware of, the kind of people, meaning as he explains some things, they're going to start being able to put some names to the characteristics he's outlining in this book. May I say this? I heard a man, I read a quote today, and the quote was more political than it was spiritual. I don't even know if the man was saved that made it. But the man said this, I lock my doors at night, not because I hate the people on the outside, but because I love the people on the inside. Don't miss the truth in that statement. He said, I lock my doors at night, not because I hate the people on the outside, but because I love the people on the inside. Jude is going to write some things about locking some doors in the church. He says, there's people that have crept in, meaning they've got in, they don't belong in, and they're trying to do you damage. And what Jude was doing was installing some locks on the doors of the people and the lives that he was influencing, not because he hated the people on the outside, but because he loved the people on the inside. How many of you know somebody that wants to come in your door while you're sleeping is not a good person? If you want to come in my house, come and knock and I'll let you in. But if you creep in when I'm not looking, you're in trouble. <laughs> Amen? Someone that creeps into your house is a creep. There's a reason we use that term. Someone that has to sneak into your house is doing so because they intend to do you harm. If you cannot become part of a local New Testament church by joining it like everyone else, something's wrong. If you've got to weasel your way in, and I'm preaching to the choir tonight, but we need to be of one mind about this especially in an age when we are being told that open arms and open doors is the only way to express love. Jude says, no, if you love those who are inside, and I'm using this, it doesn't state this in the Bible, but the idea would be you've got to lock your doors. 
Jesus said that if you come into his fold, you come through the door. The thief and the robber come up another way. They like to creep into the fold. And so then, Jude is expressing his affection for the people. He said, mercy and peace. I want the mercy of kindness for you, of God, peace in your life and love. And I want it not only in your life. I want manifold blessing. I want it multiplied. And that being his intention, then he begins to make an appeal to them. He expresses his affection for them. I want mercy, peace, and love multiplied unto you. And now I'm going to say what I have to say. Verse 3. Behold, uh, beloved rather. So he's calling them beloved. There's his affection again. When I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation. What's he mean by the common salvation? Meaning there's only one salvation for all mankind. It's the the, the salvation commonly understood to be the the, the salvation revealed by God. Salvation through Jesus Christ and Him alone. We hear folks say something like this today. Well, that's your truth. Well, there's no such thing. Two plus two equals four is not my truth. It's just truth. It's my truth when I believe it. <laughs> but it's not a truth unique to one person. The truth of salvation being through Jesus Christ alone is not a Baptist truth. It's not a Christian truth. It's just truth. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He literally is alive today. He literally came to this earth. There's a, uh, there is firm documentation by God and man of what He did when He came to this earth so that there's no need for anyone to doubt or question who He is unless we're listening to the lies of Satan. And I'm not talking about proof like physical proof. We have to have faith to believe it because it's in the Word of God. But the fact is God is established and documented in His Word the truth of Jesus Christ. And so salvation, the common salvation that Jude is talking about, there weren't many different plans of salvation, just one. He will in a moment call it the, the faith once delivered. That's his concept. Is it is a, it's a, the common salvation, that which we understand to be the salvation that God gave us in Jesus Christ. It seems this. Jude seems to say, I wanted to write to you about more about salvation. But instead, I had to write to you to earnestly contend for the faith. It seems to me he wanted to really glorify what they were given when God saved them. But he said, but there's a more pressing moment. When I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. I know this especially firsthand from being in the vocation that God has called me to that if you and I are going to obey what he exhorts us to do right here, there is an entire world of people out there ready to say, as you contend for the faith, you're doing a no-no. If you at all stand for truth, disagree with someone else's viewpoint because it's in conflict with what God says, you're contentious and unkind and unloving because we're in an atmosphere today that is promoting and gendering compromise of truth. There are men today that do claim to be preachers of God who blatantly, outright preach things that are in blatant contradiction to the Word of God. He'll deal with that in just a moment. And then they do it in the name of grace, and this is exactly what Jude was dealing with. And friend, we can say, nah, I don't, I don't like the mean-spiritedness. And Look, there's no way to avoid being branded mean-spirited, unkind, and unloving if we're going to stand for truth, we should never stand for truth with an arrogant attitude, with rudeness or unkindness. But you can be as nice as great-grandmother 
and still there's a world that's putting pressure on us to deny the truth when we're we're at a point it should be the opposite where we should say we're going to not just contend for the faith, not a faith, not our faith, the faith, once delivered unto the saints. We are to earnestly contend for the faith. And Jude's appeal, let me give you just a few things. Number one, you see his own earnestness. He entreats them to be earnest, but look at his earnestness. The idea of earnestness is being sincere and, and very seriously focused and devoted to something. He says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should uh, earnestly contend for the faith. You can hear his own earnestness. His, he, he brings on a tone of seriousness, soberness. Over and over in the Bible, we're called to be sober-minded. That doesn't mean not just to not get drunk. It certainly does mean that. But it means to be focused and to be temperate in the mind and to rule in the thoughts and be serious. Not, not walking around glum-faced all the time, never enjoying anything. That's not what it means to be sober-minded. But it's the idea of being circumspect and sober in our thoughts and under the control of God's Word. And so you hear that in him. He said, Beloved, uh, when I gave all diligence, this was something of extreme importance to Jude. There's some things I needed to write to you, and I was going to write to you the common salvation, but it was needful. There's a great need, and he's going to explain why. Because of the season we're living in, that I should write to you and exhort you to do what I'm going to exhort you to do. And so you see his earnestness in his appeal, and then his, ex- his exhortation is that they should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Turn to Luke, if you would, very quickly. Luke outlines the, the mindset we should have. And I'm telling you, in an, in an era that the lost world has dubbed post-truth, post-modern, they apply that to the truth about salvation as much as they do anything else. They say there was a time when it was commonly accepted that a man would marry a woman and that would create a family unit. But now... But now, in this postmodern era, we have learned through science, which is not science, that a man can marry a man, a woman can marry a woman, and you can do all sorts of things and modify what your conscience knows is true, what, uh, what, what is naturally known to be true, and defy natural law and spiritual law, because we're beyond those binding facts. Open your mind to other ideas and break away from tradition. Well... That what we see going on in the political world, what we see going on in the social world, is undoubtedly first and foremost going on in the spiritual world. Well, it's been long held that salvation is through faith in Jesus alone, but that's too narrow. When in fact Jesus said the gate is narrow, straight, and the way is narrow. And so then Luke says it this way, verse 1 of Luke 1, "...for as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order..." a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us. There were some things that had been delivered about who Jesus was and what he had done and who he was and where he was that every Christian must believe or you're not a Christian. May I say this? If you do not believe in the sinless perfection of Jesus Christ, you're not a Christian. If you don't believe in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, you're not a Christian. If you don't believe in his bodily resurrection, you're not a Christian. If you don't believe that his blood is the only way to have your sins forgiven... You're not a Christian. So it says that's too narrow-minded. That's the truth once delivered. That's the truth. By the way, all the practical things we hold to are built on those truths. Everything we believe about how to have church from how to live our daily lives is built upon who Jesus is. 
He's coming again. We want to be pleasing in His sight. And so uh, it says, Those things most surely believed among us, verse 2 of Luke 1, even as they delivered them unto us. There's that word again. The faith wants what? Delivered. Even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the world. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. He says some things we are sure are true. Jude is using the same kind of language. He said, I'm writing to you to earnestly contend for the faith, the, the, the body of beliefs that was once... Now, is there a difference in delivered and discovered? There's a vast difference. Our faith, the body of beliefs we hold, was not discovered. You think about any cult, and you can mark her down. Any cult says, we have discovered a vein of truth previously unknown and hidden, and we've discovered it. I discovered it through personal meditation. I discovered it by looking into a seeing stone. I discovered it by finding a hidden code in the Bible. But some individual elevated themselves and said, I have discovered a truth, and now I will share my truth with you if you'll follow me. Wherein our faith was not discovered, it was delivered. God sent Jesus from heaven to tell us what the truth is. And the Lord Jesus told His apostles and committed that truth to them. And they delivered it to the next generation. And those people delivered it to us and God preserved it in the book. And that faith, what we believe, was not discovered by somebody looking into some rock or some person who thought they were elevated above other people. God Himself told us the truth not only about how we got here, but how we can get in eternity into His presence, right with Him, in fellowship with Him, so that God has spoken, we can be sure that what we believe is what God has said. That's the difference. And so uh, Jude reminds them, your faith was delivered to you. Someone brought you the truth that has been settled truth. Eyewitnesses verifying that Jesus raised from the dead. How many of us understand that if 500 people in this town saw something happen... Can you imagine what a fool you'd be to still doubt it? I mean, honestly, if somebody said there was a, a head-on collision earlier today at three mile, and you said, well, I didn't hear anything about it. So, well, you are now. I'm telling you about it. So, well, give me some proof. And you say, well, I've got 500 people that happen to be in the area. There's never 500 people three mile at one time anyhow. But if there were, they're all there, and they all have the same story. Maybe from a different angle, but it's all the same story. And if you could get 500 people in a row, say, yep, that's what I saw. And then you say, no, no, this is all fabricated to control people. What kind of a nut would you be? I mean, I like it when there's two or three witnesses, but 500? More than 500 people saw Jesus alive after his resurrection and verified it, so much so that it was written down, and yet some today still doubt that it's true. And so then Jude is saying, I'm exhorting you to earnestly contend Again, let me say this. Only by pride cometh contention. We're not talking about being contentious. We're not talking about starting fights and arguing. But to contend for the faith means to stand up for in defense of what is true. To be willing to say, but thus saith the Lord. This is what God says. And so they were to earnestly contend for the faith. And then thirdly, we only see his earnestness in his appeal, verse 3, his uh, exhortation. He exhorts them and he's saying, the reason I'm writing to you is to give you some ammunition to earnestly contend for the faith, to, to, to stand in support of the faith that was delivered to you and not lay over and 
let others come and rob and pervert it. Verse 4, then he's going to begin some exposure. He says, for there, here's why you need to earnestly contend for the faith, for there are certain men crept in unawares. Meaning without you being aware, there are some people that have crept in. That word crept in means to come alongside of. There are people that have, have weaseled their way into your congregations, into your midst. They're crept in unawares, undetected as evil men who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I never thought in my life, I really didn't, I would see the day where people in, I'd heard and read of this in the Bible, where it would become commonplace for people who claim to be saved by grace and enjoying that grace, using the doctrine of salvation by grace and openly promoting licentious living in the name of grace. I never thought I'd see the day where men who claim to be pastors would host beer gardens at their churches or use perverse language over the pulpit and justify it as a means of winning people to God. So we're going to defy God, disobey God, in order to get people to obey God? Why, that doesn't make a lick of sense, does it? But it's commonplace today. The most popular preaching in America uses verses on grace in the Bible to give ease to those who ought to repent And in fact, it does the opposite. It eases the conscience enough to keep one from thinking that they need to repent toward God but their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Many institutions called churches today are filled with unregenerate people, people who've never even received eternal life, do not know God, and it's because there have been there has been to some degree, and I don't wanna I don't wanna be too broad because there's been to a great degree, thank God, people who've stood for the faith and stood for the truth. But when we don't, these evil men and seducers, they have their way. And so he said, the reason I'm writing to you is there's people that have crept in among you unawares. And he's basically saying is I'm making you aware of them. You're not aware they're there, but I'm making you aware. They were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Someone might read that and say, oh, God handpicked a few people before uh, the foundation of the world to condemn someday. No, God decided if you deny Christ, you're condemned. When did God decide that? The way back when he decided if you put your faith in Christ, you'd be saved before the foundations of the world. What happens to those who deny Christ? What happens to those who refuse God? What happens to those that take side with the devil and rebel? They'll join in his punishment. That's what he's talking about. This was before of old. God said these kind of men. It was already determined before. God is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't say, well, I don't like that guy. I'm going to condemn him. No, before ordained, the ungodly that deny the Lord Jesus Christ have a, it's already a foreordained future if that's the route you take. You get to choose the path you take. You don't get to choose where it ends. If you take the broad way, it's going to end in destruction. That's the way it goes. You take the narrow way of faith in Jesus Christ alone, it ends in life. And so he exposes these men. They had crept in. Same language is used of the men in perilous times, men who creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sin. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6. I'll say it again. Anybody that has to creep around to do what they want to do is up to no good. You have to creep here and creep there. There are people, and I, I, I don't like to be a negative, but there are people who have tried to weasel their way into influence in Bonner's Ferry Baptist Church rather than 
come the way that every other person should come. I would like to be part of what this church believes, stands for, and they, when there are those who creep in, you know, ah, 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 something's not right. Amen? And so then that's what they were known for. They crept in, and the Bible says they were condemned already. These men were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men. This speaks of their corruption. These are not good men who are being misunderstood. These are ungodly men. Now, what, is, what does he give us to define their ungodliness? They turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. They use God's grace as a permission slip to be perverse. They use the grace of God as a means to keep men in continuance of sin. Romans 6, 1 and 2. Now what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Grace is not there as an easing of conscience for us to continue in sin. Grace is there to teach us that the goodness of God has forgiven us and we are liberated from sin, not a license to sin. And so uh, these men turn the grace of God into lasciviousness uh, and deny the Lord our and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the word deny mean? We might read that and think, oh, so they don't they deny the existence of God. They're atheists. No, that's not what it means. Deny means to contradict. To contradict. I was looking up, trying to find some quotes, and and uh, was unable, and so felt it must not have been necessary because I str- I tried more than once from some men who teach what we would call radical grace or. They have focused their ministries on grace. One such man that I've talked to you about before writes of Hebrews chapter 12 where the Bible speaks of whom the Lord loveth he chasteneth and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. He said there's no way the gracious God, our loving Father, would that mean that he's punishing us or dealing with us or spanking us for sin. That's a mistranslation of the Hebrew and that was written to Hebrews and he twists the scripture and you know what he does? He denies the only Lord God and the Lord Jesus Christ. God said, if I love you, what does Jesus say in Revelation 3? Whom I love, I chasten, rebuke, be zealous therefore and repent. So there are those today who in the name of grace are blatantly contradicting what the Bible openly declares. Now here's where we need to be. We need to be discerning. You know why Jude is writing this? Wait a minute, I thought he wanted mercy, peace, and love. He did. And that's why he's exposing people who are going to do harm to the people of God. When you have a teacher in your life who is, let me put it to you this way. I thought of it this way today. We need and must be patient with men who are battling sin. If you're battling sin, I'm on your side. But we must never be permissive of sin that's battling people. And when there is a form of grace that says the sin in your life is okay with God, someone lied to you. If it were okay with God, Jesus would not have suffered on the cross. He died for you to set you free from that sin, not free you to continue in it. Hear me well. There are those who will teach the grace of God is liberty to continue in sin without concern of God being displeased with you. If you're saved, you're preserved in Christ Jesus. But that doesn't mean everything you do as a saved person pleases him or is free from his chastisement or correction. And when the grace of God is turned into lasciviousness, lasciviousness is specifically an over-interest in sexual things. And there are those today who are using the grace of God for that very thing. You can tell by their very appearance and their ministry and their promotion and the doctrine that they present and won't present. 
that if they've taken the grace of God and turned into lasciviousness, God warns us of such things. And let me just encourage you, don't get caught up in that. Because what that does is it undermines the faith. The faith of Jesus Christ is he came to, to save us from sin, not console us in our sin, save us from it. Console us over the grief and guilt, yes. Comfort us and teach us. But uh, the, the doctrines of, of, may I say today, there are those today that they have focused their entire attention on and are defined by we're people that emphasize the doctrines of grace. Doesn't that sound good? Are we a grace people? But be careful. I've watched this, and I'll not apologize for saying it. I've watched Calvinism become the bridge from where people have been and standing and earnestly contending for the faith to getting to a place where they feel comfortable in their sin. And the grace of God is the permission slip. God's sovereign grace, he understands, he's your loving father. There's nothing you can do to upset him once you're saved. Now, there's men that are going to teach you that today, including some Baptists. At least they say they're Baptists. There's, if you're saved, there's nothing you can do to get God upset with you. Is that true? There's nothing you could do that would get him to bring up your sins before your face at the judgment and, and condemn you. You're, you're saved. But that does, let me put it to you this way. If you were a governor and you signed a pardon for a man who'd committed a serious crime and that pardon was signed, there's nothing ever can be brought up to try that man for that crime again. He's free and clear. And let's say the man you pardoned came to work in your employ as the governor of the state. Does that mean everything he does as your employer is going to please you? And if he is trimming your hedges and hacks them all up and you pull him in and say, hey, wait a minute, you've got to do a better job. He says, hey, you pardon me. You can't get on to me about the way I trim your hedges. That has nothing to do with it. He's not going to hang him. He's correcting him. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, scourgeth every son he receiveth, to correct us and so forth. And those who would teach grace as now that you can do anything you want. Well, really you can, but if you're saved by grace, you'll want to serve God. Amen? If you understand what the grace of God has done for you. So we'll get more into the definition of these kind of men. Jude's going to take most of the rest of the chapter to say, here's what they're like, here's what they're like, so that the people of God could identify these dangerous men who'd crept in and separate from them. These are men who separate themselves, meaning they felt they were lofty and above everyone else, like Diotrephes there in Third John. And so may we understand the tone of the book of Jude, that we must earnestly contend for the faith. If we're going to do that, we must be identifying those who are fighting against the faith and what it looks like. And so then... Uh, that's, that's going to conclude tonight. The author, the audience, the affection, and the appeal he makes that they would earnestly contend for the faith because of men who had crept in and were turning the grace of God into lasciviousness and denying uh, what God was saying, contradicting God himself. Mm-hmm.